I'd like to use the image of voice <coughs> for the talk today. <coughs> Metaphor of voice. And for those that were on the last retreat or two, we started a story that we didn't finish. And so, luckily for me, I get to start over <laughs> from the beginning. Okay, thanks. <coughs> so we're going to tell the s more of the story than we got to last time. But I'll speed through the beginning if I can. <coughs> it's my favorite story. I couldn't believe I had never heard the story before. And um, the three kings, do you know about the three kings? They come, they're a little bit late. They arrive to give Jesus some presents when he's born. And they're um, a little bit late, so they come after Christmas. And in, in northeastern Spain, they're the ones who bring the presents instead of Santa Claus. So the three kings brought this book for my son from the Arabian Nights. And we would, as we're doing here, start the story and get one or two pages into the story, and then it would be sleepy time. And then the next day, he would want to start at the beginning again. <laughs> and there were several stories in the book. And the very last story in the book, we started several times. Finally, we were in a very long car ride, and I got to hear the end of the story. <laughs> <coughs> But first, I want to read some lines from the book called The Prophet by Khalil Gibran about voice. And in case you don't know the story of the book, The Prophet, there's a man, a spiritual man, a deep person who has been away from his homeland for 12 years, I think it is. And he's looking out to see if his people have come for him on the ship. And today they've come. After 12 years of waiting, they've come. And he can go back to the mother of all things, the sea, as he calls it. But before he leaves, <clears throat> he has to find a way to thank the people that have had him with them as an outsider. So. Like many stories, I like to, rather than <clears throat> interpret it and say this is the interpretation, to feel the different ways that it can resonate with our experience. And I find a lot of resonances in that moment of being just about to leave a place that's been difficult to be, 12 years not being at home, 12 years among strangers who were living their lives and you were the outsider that place in us, as well as that situation in the world. Many times we are outsiders, and so we come to, maybe I can be inside, open our <laughs> maybe it's open enough here. But also the situation inside, where there's that in us that's on the edge, that's deep, that we don't often turn to, we don't often speak with, we don't often listen to. <coughs> So Al-Mustafa is that, that place. <clears throat> and he's about to leave, and he says, leaving is like a voice. 
He says, a voice cannot carry the tongue and lips that gave it wings. Alone must it seek the ether. Alone must it kind of fly. So just that line from the prophet. And last night in the singing, I felt such a deep quality as whoever was singing, whoever was staying for the singing, just letting the voice keep flying and staying in that moment where the voice is being made, the sound is being made and it's gone and it's fl it flies. So staying in that kind of um, doorway or transition long enough to say goodbye to what has helped us to fly and then allow what can fly to fly. So that line can just be in the background as we start our story. And for those, again, if you were not here to hear the beginning, I'm going to kind of speed through the beginning. It doesn't do justice <laughs> to the wealth of the story. <clears throat> and also in the tradition of the storytellers that I love, every time the story is different. Every time it flies differently. So this time, there was a king, a great king. And he died. And his son was just old enough to take over the kingdom. And he did. And the new king had great potential, but was not yet great. So again, just feeling how it resonates in you. The part that has experience and the part that does not have experience, for example. The part that has potential, but not experience. What would do justice to the part that has potential but not experience? What would be fruitful? Where we know we are inexperienced, and yet we know there is potential. The very good thing about the new king is that he liked to know what was really going on in the world and in his kingdom. And so every evening after supper, he dressed up like an ordinary person. And this is a hint of what comes to fruition later in the story, where even if we have great potential, the importance of ordinariness, just for itself, but also to receive news about what's real and what's really going on. So even if there's great potential, even if there is a new king in us, let there be ordinariness every day. And let that be the time that you really listen, that we listen.
And so the very first night that he went out as king, dressed as a regular person, the first thing he heard were three women's voices behind a closed screened door. And the first voice, which sounded like a crow, said, oh, how I wish I could marry the baker of the king. And then I could have as much fresh bread as I wanted and invite my friends over for tea. Then the second voice came that was like a chicken, sounded like a chicken. Oh, how I wish. I won't try to imitate the chicken. I was about to. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let the voice fly every time. <laughs> oh, how I wish. If I could have anything in the world, I would marry the chef of the king. And then I could eat whatever I want every day and invite my friends over for good food. And so we have the chance to just check, oh, how I wish, dot, dot, dot. If I could have anything or everything, what is it that I want? This is that moment. Between, this is my life, not someone else's life. This is my life in the sense of what is genuine life? And what would take this life beyond what I think I am? What would take my life beyond me? So the third sister, whose voice is like a nightingale, or like, for me, it would be the cuckoo here, the voice that sounds like water. If I could have anything, I would marry the king himself. And then I could do whatever I like, whenever I like, with whomever I like. The new king was struck to the core by the sound of this third voice. His heart stopped, his breath stopped. And he just managed to stop himself from immediately walking into the room of where these three women were. And he said, oh yes, I'm not the king right now. I'm dressed as an ordinary person. He went home tried to sleep, could not sleep, sent his advisor, sent his helper to, he remembered exactly the location where that had happened. If that moment has happened to you, the oh how I wish, or this is my life, and not my mother's or my father's or whoever's, you remember <laughs> where it happened. He told exactly how to get there and said, have them come immediately to the palace before breakfast. And so, of course, they came because the king ordered them to come. He still had not quite gotten his breath back. And he said, today, do you remember what you wished last night? The first one almost didn't remember. And so the king told her, <laughs> you wished to marry the baker, and you shall, today itself. The second one said, ah, yeah, what was it? I wish to marry the chef, and you shall, today itself. And the third one, the third sister, the youngest, the nightingale-voiced woman, 
said, I wished to marry the king. And he said, you shall. You shall marry me today in the palace. And your sisters will marry in the servants' quarters. He was so struck that he lost his common sense. He did not realize what we could realize hearing the story, that he was inviting his wife into sure disaster, which he did, and which she accepted. The kind of, it's a kind of jealousy in us, the petty wishes the small wishes, the not, even when it's like not daring to ask for everything. It's problematic. When we're trying to get um, some kind of partial completion, it's like asking for partial completion. It's never complete. We want to have that peaceful meditation again. We want to hear that poem again. We want to see that sun rise that way again, because it, it's not complete. Even if in the moment it was almost, we almost let it complete itself, including us. But because the asking was partial, the completion is not complete. And then there's the competitiveness and comparing jealousy. There's a going against the part that very innocently feels complete and knows I could marry the king. Why not? And so the jealous sisters found a way to destroy most of their younger sister's life. But being incomplete, not completely, not completely destroyed. When the younger sister was about to give birth to her first child, the king was hunting, he was away. Silly man. Stupid man. Not treasuring what's precious in the moment of treasuring. In the moment of vulnerability and power. In the moment of transformation. In the moment of that other kind of suffering that comes with life and transformation. We need to be there not hire someone else to be there for us. The sisters were there and stole the baby, replaced it with a dog, and made up a story. So this is what happened in our mind. The subtlety, the innocence, <clears throat> the 
innocence, the freshness of everything is possible, not treasured. not witnessed through. And then stories are easy to believe, especially when they're unbelievable. Like, oh, the queen gave birth to a puppy. And the king believed, and the palace believed. But the king was still in love, and so he gave her another chance, his wife another chance. When she was about to give birth, the second time. He was again away hunting. This is when we repeat. <laughs> we repeat the tragedy. This time it was a kitten that replaced the baby. The babies were sent in a basket down the river to their fate. The third time it was a boy replaced by a piece of wood. And this time the king said, it's not even living. This woman is a witch. I'm going to kill my wife. She's not human. But so many people loved the queen that they said, do not kill her. You may not kill her. No one will do it for you. So nearly worse than death, <clears throat> the king ordered a box to be made, the size of the queen, placed outside the mosque, and ordered everyone to spit in her face on their way in to worship. And some people did, and some people didn't. The punishment for not spitting was the same to be put into a box and spat upon. I don't want to say much here, but I want to just say we can kind of feel respect for the power of shame. How shame moves us. How shame stops us. For me, it's the shame of the king, <clears throat> because he loves her. But because he's king, he can't give birth to animals and would, and so he shames his beloved and her protectors. Sometimes it's enough to kind of assume the responsibility for playing with shame. For being shamed, for taking that in, and for shaming, for passing it on. Just that. It's a big important step to move out from under shame.
And it's also a simple step of touching into what's not touched, what's not moved. The three children landed in their little boats in the home of the head gardeners of the king, who did not have children of their own. And they were raised in the best possible way. Lucky children to have been sent from the palace to people with life experience and love. And they grew up in a home of love and they grew up loving. And then the parents, the gardeners of the king, asked for permission to retire from the king. And the king had very nice gardens, was very grateful, and gave them a very big piece of land and resources to make the garden of their dreams and a home to live there. And so they did. And as soon as the garden was done, the parents died. And the three young people were left loving each other even more than before. They got into a rhythm. They got onto their feet. Which sometimes can happen when what had been our perfect support is gone. Sometimes it helps us find our feet. At first, we are shaky. And then, if we don't let our insecurity take over, our hopelessness, our sense of not belonging, if we don't let that take over, then we find that we stand on our feet and we love each other more. That we can. And that life is worthwhile. And so they lived. And people started to hear about this garden and they came to see the garden. And the sister, the youngest, loved to show her parents' garden. It was what she loved to do. To show, to this person she would show the shade of this tree on a hot day. To that person, she would show this fountain. And one day, there came a woman, an, a very old woman, dressed very, very simply, with a rosary around her neck, and a mark of prayer bowing down on her forehead. And she didn't ask to come in, but she stopped in front of their home. And so the sister, the younger, the youngest child invited her in, gave her something fresh to drink, showed her a nice place to take a nap in the shade, and waited for her to wake up fresh. And she did. And the sister said, don't you want to see the garden? Have you come to see the garden? Have you heard about this garden? And the woman just nodded her head, mm-hmm, okay. And the sister showed her everything in the garden, waiting for the usual response of, wow, 
which never came. The old woman only nodded and said no word. Then the sister said, don't you like the garden? Have you ever seen a garden like this? And finally the woman spoke. With the music of life experience in her voice, she said, I have never seen a garden as good as this one in my life. But if you want me to be honest, my dear child, your garden is missing three things. Three things. So the sister first was shocked and embarrassed, but she had not been brought up in shame. So she was able to ask, what are the three things? Some of us would have stopped and pretended to know what the three things were or that it didn't matter or whatever, but something knew it mattered. And she asked, what are the three things? This is an important question, a kind of openness. When life experience calls on us in ways that we don't have an answer for. We're doing really fine, we're doing well, we're good. Life is good. We've accepted the difficulties. And then something happens, a challenge comes, or several challenges at once. And we have no clue. We have resources, but we have no clue. Whether to go forward, what to do, what to say, what not to do. And so the openness. In the Buddha's lifetime, it was this the most amazing turning point, I think, of his life, in my opinion, more important than the special being born with all kinds of marks of a great one and the special enlightenment and the special death was the turning point. He was doing the practices that other people told him to do, which was about bearing suffering, bearing pain, essentially holding his breath, and managing not to breathe. So disconnecting from life, staying alive, <laughs> and bearing the pain of disconnection from aliveness. He even found if a little bit of air could go through the ears into the nasal sinus channels, so he would close his ears and hold his breath. And it was incredibly painful. I won't give you a description to have go around in your head during your meditations. <laughs> Terrible torture. And nothing was happening. It was not only not juicy, <coughs> nothing was happening, no benefit. Only his body was near to death. That was all that was happening. His body was almost dying. To bear that moment of seeing, to actually experience ourselves, copying what others have done. And the others had not attained also. <laughs> the others had attained some kind of states, but they were not realized beings. Co and copying that, 
at least copy what a realized being did, if you want to copy. But we copy maybe what the most shaming ones told us to do, probably. So we copy, we try, we try to catch up. And it doesn't work. And it doesn't work. And we're more and more disconnected from aliveness. Near to death. And so we come to those moments where even after all these years of spiritual practice and spiritual teachings, we say, you might say, people have said to me, I want to kill myself because I'm suffering after all of that. All that I received, the best teachings, the highest teachings, the fast path. After all these years, I thought I gave everything to my meditation practice or to my whatever. And I'm still suffering. If we could let that, if we could not come to that point, please, much better. <laughs> if we're at that point sometime, let it be that that could be an openness. To say, I don't know what. I don't know what is going on. I don't know what life is. I don't know what I am. I don't know what to do. I don't know what not to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know what not to say. Because we haven't yet died, <laughs> something comes through. In the Buddha's case, a memory of being a child. So this freshness, where he wasn't doing anything in particular, and there was joy. This is that place, it's related to the, younger, the youngest sister who said, I will marry the king, if I can wish anything. Why not? A freshness that doesn't believe I have to earn my place on earth. It doesn't believe I have to do something to be a part of what's wonderful. To be a part of love. Nothing needs to be added. When openness can come and we can bear how we denied aliveness and assume that responsibility, it doesn't mean then we're finished, we got it. It means now we can start. Okay? The Buddha felt that was a joy unearned for no reason. It just is. And I felt it one time. This is the Buddha we're talking about. He became the famous Buddha. Let's put it that way. <laughs> if we can be willing to start small, simple and fresh, and at the same time that like the king, No intermediary. Not like joy because I get meditation, I got it now. Or now I understand that teaching. Not for any reason. 
it goes the other way around. Starting from the joy that already is, then we start to understand sometimes, and we know when we do not, and it's okay. It doesn't kick me out to not understand. Is there any questions so far? We still haven't gone beyond. <laughs> I didn't really speed. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we still haven't even gotten to where I ended. We're almost to the where. <laughs> it took me, uh, yeah, I did doubles, <laughs> half time, whatever. <laughs> I love the story. Did you have a question, Tomas? No question? Yeah, can I? Yes, please. Uh, Mr. Tomas. Uh, you said that the Buddha, when he um, just was asking all of these questions. Uh, he, he asked these questions. These are the questions he asked, yes. I'll tell you. It's not so many, but just so it doesn't feel like because he's the Buddha, it's a big deal. The big deal is bearing the revelation that I basically wasted my time, kind of. That I kind of wasted my time. That I betrayed oh. life. It's also not a waste of time because then from there we can, we have something to go on. And, and then somehow he felt joy. So, so he, I'll tell you, I didn't tell that story either. <laughs> it's very short, this one, the way I'm telling it now. He remembered being a child and being happy for no reason. And he could feel the quality. This might have come from all the years of torture practice, <laughs> torture meditation, self-torture meditation that he could feel, he had enough refinement in his sensing that he could feel the difference in the quality of the joy that he felt as a child from any constructed joy. And he said, then it, the sentence came to him, according to the text, maybe there is another way, sorry, maybe there's another way, then he remembered this moment. Then he said, it said, something said, maybe that's the way. And then he was afraid. He was afraid of his own way. <coughs> this is where we say goodbye to the 12 years. It's one resonance with that moment in the Prophet where Al-Mustafa is saying goodbye to the 12 years. It's one of those moments. Saying goodbye properly. I'm afraid to go into the new way that has not been proven to me. But I have no other option. That must be the way. But if we can allow the fear also, the fear of joy, and let it be crazy because we're crazy. And it's also not like this happens only once in one way. It happens in so many ways. In some way, every day it probably happens. But it's not like we kind of try to point ourselves and compress everything and pressure and build towards that moment of the Buddha. We feel if there's, a, if there's any resonance in my own experience with maybe there's another way, <laughs> but I don't know it. And then the openness allows aliveness to speak to us. It allows a living voice in us. And we can also hear maybe that's the way. 
maybe something completely different from what I've ever tried, from what I thought I know. That's why it's scary, because we have so much invested. And then, of course, I'm afraid. Expect it. It's natural. It's almost like that little bow at the threshold. Thank you, past. Thank you, past mistakes. Thank you, refinement of my sensing. Thank you, living voice. Let's fly. So then the old woman says to the sister, or life says to us, what's missing? The singing bird. Uh, sorry, not the singing bird. There's many of those. The talking bird. The singing tree. And the golden water. And it's that kind of voice that shakes her, shakes the sister. And she knows she must have that in her garden. So when she realizes that, she asks the old woman, how can I have this? Important question. <laughs> if we're not stuck in the shock of not having, in the shock of excitement that I could have, etc. How do I have these, please, wise woman? And she says, anyone who goes out your front gate and rides straight for 20 days, the next person you see, ask. And so she is unquiet. And her brothers come home from hunting. And she tries to hide her unquiet. She was usually so joyful, and now she's unquiet. She's restless. And so they ask. And finally she tells them. This woman came, and she told me this. And as soon as the words left her mouth, and she saw what happened when her brothers heard her, she wanted to call back her words because she saw that her older brother was already out the door to go and get it for her. And she said, but she saw she couldn't stop him. She said, how will I know if something happens to you? How will I know if you're well? And he said, I understand. I'm going to get it for you, but I understand, little sister, it's just to make you feel better. Keep my dagger, which is a knife, keep my dagger with you. And you can check it from time to time. If it's clean, you know I'm well. If you take it out of the cover and it's covered in blood, you know my life is in danger. And he left. And he rode without stopping, only stopping, sorry, to eat, drink, pray, and sleep. And it was true. He started to see no one, no one, no one, and then 20 days were finished, and there was a dervish under a tree. 
with a huge bag next to him. And he approached the dervish and it said, excuse me, sir, I'm sorry to bother you. This may sound crazy, but do you know how I can get the singing bird, the talking bird, the singing tree, and the golden water? You have come for that, have you? Well, we must help <coughs> fellow travelers, mustn't we? I wish I could not tell you, but I must tell you. Do you realize what you're asking? The brother was the oldest child, so he was very confident. He said, I must have this for my sister. And so the dervish opened his bag and took out a metal ball and said, take this ball. Throw it as far as you can and wait for it to stop rolling. When it stops rolling, you also stop and leave your horse there. Let the reins, so that the straps that guide the horse, let them just hang. You don't need to tie your horse. Your horse will stay with the ball. And from there, you start walking up the mountain. At the top of the mountain, you will find the talking bird in a cage. And so the brother said, yes, okay, but what about, he was so sure of himself, okay, what about the singing tree and the golden water? The dervish said, once you have the talking bird, the talking bird will tell you what you need to know. And the dervish was like, wait, 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 wait. slow down. When you're going up the mountain towards the talking bird, two very important things. You must not turn around, not even once. And you will hear many voices. They will tell you all kinds of things, and you must not listen. Again, the brother was so confident that he immediately, he listened, kind of, and he threw the ball as far as he could. He followed the ball. He stopped, kissed his horse goodbye, and started walking up the mountain. He was fine for a few steps. This is when we start to practice with force and the wrong kind of confidence thinking that we still know what we're doing somehow. <clears throat> After a few steps, the voices started to be scary and confusing. What are you doing here? Who do you think you are? Let's kill him, attack, break him into pieces. Kept going, kept going, kept going. He was getting near the top. And suddenly, he doesn't know what happened, but he lost his strength. His knees felt weak, he felt dizzy, he could not take another step. And without thinking clearly, he thought, I better go back, because I can't make it, I can't get there. As soon as he turned, he and his horse turned into one, two more black 
rocks on the mountain, among many. This is when <clears throat> we try. We try thinking that we know how to try. We think that getting it right is important. We think that there's a right to get. And so somewhere we're armed. It's like we're armed against life. We're armed against our own practice. We're armed against ourselves. For me, it's like how we've learned to raise children. What I notice, now there's more talk about being gentle, about wise communication, about letting the children also have their voice. <clears throat> but basically, when it comes down to it, use force. So be gentle, be kind, be loving, love is enough, etc. But if the child is have, making a scene, if the child is being too loud, if the child is doing something that is beyond a certain point, use force. It's not to say that great strength is not needed, that firmness is not needed, etc. But it's different to have strength than to be aggressive. And so sometimes it would be the possibility of, we've reached our limit, we've crossed a limit, not reaching for aggression, but trusting love and waiting to see what response might come, which is totally embarrassing. The mother <laughs> is laughing. <laughs> When we're willing to go to be burned by the fire of total embarrassment, a new response, I was going to say can come, but comes, I say. If we don't keep dividing ourselves into watching how I'm doing and what I'm doing, but just being with it, being with the impossibility. And of course, I'm not now talking about raising children, but ourselves. One of my Tibetan teachers says, talks about a kind of communication, an act of generosity, without any demand. Once we begin to make demands, we solidify the communication which means there's not communication. He says, in that case, the other person is not able to communicate with us at all. Whereas if there is openness, exchange takes place freely as it is, in the open sense of generosity. So 
So not even a demand if I'm feeling my breath. Not any demand as I breathe in that there needs to be a connection to the out-breath. That the in-breath does not, as another spiritual friend says, Dogenji, the in-breath does not anticipate the out-breath. The out-breath does not anticipate the in-breath. And there's more flow. So when the sister and the younger brother saw the knife covered with blood, we know what happens next. <laughs> the younger brother goes out. The sister tries to stop him, can't even try to stop him. But what will be my sign that you're well, she asks him. And he gives her a rosary, so beads on a string. If you can pass these through your fingers several times a day, if they pass smoothly through your fingers, you know I'm well. And if they stop in your hand, you know my life is in danger. So this time, instead of stopping, I might speed through the middle part. So the younger brother goes and rides, only stopping for what he needs. And he asks the first person he sees, which is the dervish, and he receives the same information. And he throws the ball, and he goes to where the ball stops, and he leaves his horse, and he starts walking. And after he takes a few steps, he hears a voice that says, what are you doing here? This is my mountain. And he turns around to explain himself, and he turns into a rock, and so does his horse. And there are two more black rocks on a mountain full of black rocks. And the sister picks up the mala, the rosary, and it stops in her fingers. And she, without hesitation, goes to her brother's room and puts on her brother's clothes and gets on her favorite horse and starts riding. Finally, <laughs> there's no kind of layer working for us. For me, the second brother, one thing that I feel when I feel the second brother is a kind of like goodness. Not even trying to be good anymore, but just being good being in tune, being connected, seeing clearly, being helpful. But it, it's not enough. It turns to explain itself. And so finally what needs to move, moves. And maybe we can see how it, it's not necessarily a mistake in the story. It's not necessarily that the sister should have gone first for herself. It may be that we need to try and see ourselves using aggression when we get desperate instead of falling into openness 
and letting some other voice come. We can see ourselves being content in goodness, in righteousness, in rightness, in some kind of spiritual success that still has some flavor of like renting <laughs> the space, renting the life instead of owning the life. Some kind of little bit of bargain where, where I earn my life. Even if I feel this goodness is not mine, but still somehow I have it and it lets me let myself be. When the sister goes, it's no longer the questions that we used to ask about how much force or how much relaxation. We can see why we used to ask that question, but in this case, something acts before we think, before we know what we're doing. And one kind of version of that is in our practice where we're going along with a practice that we can't describe. We can't tell anyone what I practice. It's one version of that. And feeling how we could feel loyal to that rather than loyal to the practice I can explain. Sometimes it's a life situation where there's no backup. You're the only one who can respond. And then it can only be not you responding, but something that's quicker than you. Where there's not time to compare, to compete, to check how I'm doing. It has some similarity to emergency. If you've been in an emergency, it has some similarity to that without the adrenaline. So not even spiritual logic <laughs> works anymore. The same teacher who talks about openness and communication and exchange because of no demand talks about the instinct of awake. So like a biological instinct, like that, but not that. Something that's beyond our little life. And it goes for the two, for the two, for the very inner and the very outer. It goes because I have to find the talking bird and the singing tree and the golden water and I have to get my brothers back or I have to do everything I can. But not thinking that, just doing. <laughs> so she meets the dervish and she asks the questions. And the dervish recognizes her. You must be the woman. I see that you're a woman, he said to her even if you wear a man's clothing. 
I see that I see we could even resonate with that receptivity that moves. I see a receptivity in action to give a little bit simplistic words. You must be the woman that brought these two young men to risk their lives to please you. And she said, ah, so you've, you've met my brothers. Please tell me, where can I find the talking bird, the singing tree, the golden water? He tells her everything that he said to the others, but then she said, ah, I know that I could keep my eyes fixed on the top of the mountain, but I also know that it will be hard not to listen to the voices. What can I do? Do you have any suggestion? And before the dervish can say anything, and he may not have had an answer, she says, ah, I know. I will put some cotton in my ears so that I can't quite hear the voices so well, so clearly. And she does what she's meant to do, and she starts walking. And she hears the who do you think you are and the what do you think you're doing here and let's kill her, and oh, maybe we could go with her, or maybe she's the magic, or the, it's not only the, the voices of your downfall, <laughs> but also the voices of your upfall. One of my, you can say, Guru Bahen in, in Hindi, like Guru sisters with Papaji, Gangaji, great teacher, <coughs> says, Leela plays hard. Leela is the way life, it can be playful and can seem to play with us. And she says, Leela plays hard. She says, expect <laughs> to be kind of tempted, offered your wildest dreams in that petty, limited realm. If you dreamt of being a guru with rose petals falling around you, Expect to be tempted with that. If you, if you have some uh, hope or fear, expect at some point for that to be offered, whether literally or inwardly. And just walking through the voices, staying with that place that got moved by hearing what life needs in the garden, what can be. And she's getting almost to the top of the mountain. And the voices are ever more intense. And at the last moment, the bird itself says to her, you stay away from me. I do not belong to you. Get out of here. Imagine. <laughs> She doesn't stop. She walks even faster to catch the cage in her hand. And she says, now you're mine. <laughs> the voice of her heart. The bird apologizes, by the way. <laughs> I'm sorry I said that.
Shall we leave it at that? May that unstoppable freshness take flight in us, in our lives, with gratitude toward our past, and no holding back, no showing off. May our lives be fulfilled. May our lives contribute towards the momentum, towards liberation everywhere.